welcome to Montrose Bible Church. We're so glad you've chosen to join us as Pastor Matt and other church leaders challenge us with a message from God's Word. Well, good morning. I'd like to welcome you to Montrose Bible Church on this second Sunday of Advent. My name is Joe Plants, and we'll be continuing on in our series in Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, is one of the great passages describing the Lord Jesus. It is referred to as one of four Christological passages in the New Testament, and upon reading it, we should be in awe of him. Last week, as we took a look at this passage, from the 35,000 feet, we saw a great description of Jesus is not there just so we can marvel at him, but it serves as an example to us. This passage of scripture should cause us to fall down and worship him in awe and reverence, and it should inspire us to follow Christ's example of humility. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we just pray that as we open your word this morning, we pray that your word would penetrate our hearts. We pray that we would have understanding and that we would see who you truly are. Lord, we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, as we dive into this passage, we are going to start to look at it, not from the perspective of an airplane flying over at 35,000 feet, but rather we are going to look at it under a microscope so we can see the glorious details. We'll be looking at verses 6 and 7 specifically, and it describes the incarnation of our Lord Jesus. This word incarnation is a word that gets thrown around a lot at this time of year, and for good reason. The definition of the word incarnation is this, a person who embodies in the flesh a deity, spirit, or abstract quality. The incarnation is in fact what we celebrate at Christmas time the God of the universe coming down to take on human flesh. We oftentimes look to the Gospel of Luke for this account and see the particulars of Jesus' birth. We see him born in a manger, shepherds worshiping him, and the angels singing. But today we're going to see a different side to the incarnation. We're going to see Almighty God coming down and taking on the form of lowly man and some of the complexities that are involved with that. So let's read together Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The very first thing we learn from verse 6 is that Jesus is God. Although it seems like a fairly straightforward point from the text, he, that is Jesus, was in the form of God, 
The deity of Christ is something that has been attacked by heretical sects of Christianity from the early church into our current times. They make little changes, like saying Jesus Christ is a God. Amazing how that one little letter, A, makes a huge difference. Jesus isn't just one of many gods, though. He is the one and only true God. Some say Jesus is the Son of God, but deny he is God. It is true that Jesus is the Son of God, but he is also God. You see, we must get this point right, church. Jesus was God before he came and lived on this earth. Jesus was God while he was here on the earth in human form. And Jesus is still God as he sits on the right hand of the throne of God the Father. Let's dive a little deeper into verse 6 again. It reads, Who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now there are two words I want to draw your attention to. First is the word was. It implies that Jesus existed before he was born on this earth, a concept that is supported by a plethora of verses, but here are a few. Let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 1. John chapter 1 and verses 1 through 3 says this. It says, In the beginning was the Word, And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Let's skip down to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, clearly, the Word or Jesus, existed before his incarnation and is clearly God. Turn over to Colossians chapter 1 and verse 17. Here it reads, And he is before all things, And in him, all things hold together. Again, clear indication that he was existed before his incarnation. And then turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9 and this familiar Christmas verse. And Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7 say this. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with right justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Notice the title of Everlasting Father. And yet that brings us to the second word that I want us to draw your attention to. And that is the word form. So we know that Jesus eternally existed. But what does it mean to be in the form of God? 
The word for form here is only used by Paul in this verse and our next verse when he tells us that Jesus came in the form of a servant. Seeing how this is used prominently in both our verses for the day, we better understand it better. Now, I'm no Greek scholar, but thankfully there are a lot of good resources out there to help us understand some of these words that get translated into pretty common English words. In Colossians 1.15, Jesus is referred to as the image of the invisible God. The word image really simply meaning the physical representation of God. But Paul doesn't use that word image here. Rather, he uses a word that means visible appearance and in essence or by nature. In fact, if we read the verse in the NIV, it reads like this. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. You see, this word form is so much stronger a word than the word image. And as one commentator said, the phrase in the form of God is best interpreted against the background of the glory of God, that shining light in which, according to the Old Testament and intertestamental literature, God was pictured. The expression does not refer simply to external appearance, but pictures the pre-existent Christ as clothed in the garments of divine majesty and splendor. Make no mistake, Paul is without a doubt telling us here that Jesus is God. Not merely an image of God, or as you and I, created in the image of God. He is God in appearance and to his very core. This brings us to the second part of our verse where Paul states that he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, or in the NIV, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. The idea of people in power abusing their authority for personal gain is not that hard for us to imagine. If we look back at history, we can see hundreds, if not thousands, of examples of people abusing the authority given to them. But Jesus was quite the opposite. In Matthew chapter 20, two of his disciples are to be the second in command. And this is what he has to say with them. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 20. Verse 25 says this. It says, But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever should be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. You see, Jesus redefines leadership and authority in these four verses. Remember, he is God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one that one day every knee will bow to. And yet he gives his life for his people and looks for nothing in return. This brings us to our second verse, verse 7, where we see God becoming flesh. The incarnation. And although we are very familiar with the concept, 
incarnation a little closer, not so much focusing on the particulars of what time of the year he was born or when the wise men came to visit him, but rather looking at what it means for the almighty God of the universe to come down and take on the form of lowly and finite man. Let's consider the first phrase in verse 7, emptied himself. These two words have led many astray. In the late 1800s, a theologian named Gottfried Tomasius introduced the thought of kenoticism. It states that when Christ took on human form, he laid aside his deity to become man. This heresy is derived from this verse and is named after the verb which is translated in our Bibles, emptied. But this simply cannot be true. Consider what we have already talked about, Jesus being in the appearance of God and by very nature God. And what does the rest of Scripture have to say on this topic? Let's look back at Colossians in chapter 2. Colossians 2, verse 9 states, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Pretty straight and to the point, the full deity dwells in him in bodily form. If you're still not convinced, though, let's take a look at Jesus' life. There was one day he was walking through a crowd, and a woman touched him, and she was healed. And he could feel the power leave him. People, they asked him questions, not for answers but for accusations, and he knew their thoughts. He used five loaves to feed 5,000 men. He walked on water. He raised himself back to in human Jesus did not empty himself of his divinity he emptied himself of the privilege of his divinity to further demonstrate that let us look at the rest of verse 7 he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men how did he empty himself by taking on the form of a servant in the likeness of men It's hard for us to comprehend just how humble the Lord is. We get that God is greater than man, but we really have no clue how much greater he is. And when we read here that he didn't even come as a prestigious man, but rather in the form of a servant, that is, in appearance as a servant, and by nature a servant, as we learn that word form means, again, as we look to his life, we see his life of a servant played out. He was born in a barn to insignificant parents. He healed sick people. He fed hungry people. He at times was hungry and at times had no place to rest. He was not concerned with his will because he was only concerned with the will of his father. The ultimate act of servanthood would be his death, an act that would cost him everything but give mankind a way back to his father. So why did Jesus come as a man? 
The first reason we see is from the context surrounding our verses for today, and that is to be an example. We are too proud to do the small things we are asked to do by the Lord sometimes because we think we are meant for something bigger. But look at the example of Jesus. His purpose for coming was to save mankind, a pretty big task. And yet he took the time to do many lowly tasks, like washing his disciples' feet. We need to not get caught up with dreaming of the next big thing that we can do for the Lord. Because one, he doesn't need you or I to do anything for him. And two, all he wants from us is to do the next thing he has set before us. He also came so he could sympathize with us. He's been hungry. He's been thirsty. He's been tired. He's been tested. And he's been tempted. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, it says this. It says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. He knows the struggles we are facing because he lived through them. But the most important reason for the incarnation was to accomplish his work of redemption. You see, he had to be God in order to be the perfect, spotless lamb. And he had to take on flesh because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Hebrews chapter 9 gives us some insight as to how these two things work together to accomplish the work of redemption. Let's turn over to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 22. says this indeed under the law almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these for Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands which are copies of the true things but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just that is As it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. You see, the law required a sacrifice and the shedding of blood for sins to be forgiven. But the blood of bulls and goats could not fully satisfy That is why they had to be offered over and over again. No, there needed to be a better sacrifice. 
a perfect sacrifice. You see, God would need to take on human form and sacrifice himself. Perfect because he is God, and in him there is no sin. In the flesh, so blood could be shed to make atonement for sin. So this Christmas, as you sit around with friends and family, remembering the Lord Jesus' birth, think about the infinite God of the universe taking on the form of a finite man, not giving up any of his deity to become man. Think about the depths to which he stooped so we could be reconciled back to God. What a Savior. Let's pray. Dear gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you that you could be the perfect sacrifice. We thank you that you came and you shed your blood for us on this cross. Lord, we just pray that this Christmas season we would remember that. And we would remember the cost that it was to reconcile us back to you. Lord, we just praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us. I trust you've been blessed by the study of God's Word. For more information about Montrose Bible Church, visit our website, montrosebiblechurch.org. 